Hello, welcome to the June 2022 HRO podcast. I'm Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief. We have a great lineup of articles for this June issue. It starts off with our Global Voices editorial, where we were able to interview three electrophysiologists practicing in war-torn Ukraine. The first original article is by Dr. Shadi Yagi and colleagues. It is titled, Longitudinal Outcomes in Cryptogenic Stroke Patients with and Without Long-Term Cardiac Monitoring for Atrial Fibrillation. The authors perform a retrospective study to look at 12,994 patients in the Optum Claims Database diagnosed with a cryptogenic stroke who have subsequent cardiac monitoring. The patients were stratified according to external cardiac monitoring or an insertable cardiac monitor. The outcomes looked at were time to AF diagnosis, use of oral anticoagulation, and all-cause mortality. 1,949, or 15% of the total cohort, received an insertable cardiac monitor, and the remainder had external monitoring. Compared to those with external monitoring only, ICM patients had a significantly lower rate of death with a hazard ratio of 0.70 and faster time to AF diagnosis and anticoagulation initiation during follow-up to five years. The authors found, therefore, that patients who received an ICM after their incident cryptogenic stroke hospitalization had AF detected more quickly and more frequently. They also had an increase in anticoagulation and experienced improved survival. The authors postulate that having an insertable cardiac monitor might reflect that a patient is at a center with more advanced services and or provide more contact with the healthcare system where the patients then might have more rapid response to a finding such as AF identification, and importantly, receive implementation of oral anticoagulation. An editorial by Dr. Tia Garaja and colleagues accompanies this paper. The next paper is by Dr. Jonathan Dahl and colleagues. The title of this paper is Longitudinal Electrocardiographic Assessment in Brugada Syndrome. These authors used patients from their healthcare system with a Brigada syndrome ECG that had been identified on two separate resting ECGs. They then looked at serial changes on the patient's ECGs. They categorized the 72 patients into separate groups. Group 1 were those who had dynamic ECGs and included patients with both a spontaneous type 1 and non-type 1 pattern. The second group were those who had a provoked only Brigada type 1 pattern. And the third was a persistent group with a type 1 Brigada syndrome pattern that was on all ECGs that have been obtained in these patients. The authors then used the Shanghai Validation Risk Score, which was published in 2018, to identify characteristics predictive of sudden cardiac death. 828 resting ECGs were evaluated. The majority of the cohort had a dynamic pattern, or 69%. There were only 17 patients in the provoked-only group, and the persistent group included only five patients. Of note, however, those five patients had the highest likelihood of having had prior syncope, cardiac arrest, or sinus node dysfunction. Despite the differences in the numbers, the number of ECGs were similar across the groups. About half the patients had a syncope history. Sinus node dysfunction and prior cardiac arrest were associated with the persistent type 1 group, but no other factors were associated with the other groups. A family history of sudden cardiac death was present in approximately 20 to 30% of patients across the three groups. Also, patients with a spontaneous type 1 pattern appeared to have higher rates of syncope, cardiac arrest, and family history of Brigada syndrome, and sudden cardiac death. 
The major take-home point is that the majority of patients in this cohort had dynamic ECG patterns. The next paper is titled, Association of Left Ventricular Tissue Heterogeneity in Intramyocardial Fat on Computed Tomography with Ventricular Arrhythmias in Ischemic Cardiomyopathy. This is by Dr. Usama Daimi and colleagues. This is a proof-of-concept study using contrast-enhanced CT to measure global LV tissue heterogeneity in intermyocardial fat mass. The outcome measure is the risk of ventricular arrhythmias defined as appropriate ICD shocks or sudden cardiac death. 47 patients were evaluated who had ischemic cardiomyopathy, a left ventricular ejection fraction equal to or less than 35%, and no prior history of ventricular arrhythmias. These patients were included in a prospective observational registry of patients undergoing LGE-CMR. The authors provide specific definitions for measurement of gray zone, tissue heterogeneity, and intramyocardial fat. The authors found that 13 of the 47 patients, or 27.7%, had ventricular arrhythmia events over 5.6 years. Multivariate predictors of ventricular arrhythmia events included increased tissue heterogeneity with an odds ratio of 1.22. Heterogeneity values equal to or greater than the median had a 13-fold significantly increased risk of ventricular arrhythmia events. When tissue heterogeneity was added to gray zone measures, this improved the prediction of ventricular arrhythmias. The ROC increased from 0.815 to 0.876. No association was found between intramyocardial fat mass on CECT and ventricular arrhythmias with an odds ratio of 1. The authors conclude that in ICM patients, CECT-derived LV tissue heterogeneity was independently associated with ventricular arrhythmias and may represent a novel marker useful for risk stratification. Next up is a paper called Acute Pericarditis After Atrial Fibrillation Ablation, Incidents, Characteristics, and Risk Factors, this is by Dr. Shady Nakhla and others. These authors evaluate the incidence and risk factors for acute pericarditis after catheter ablation of atrial fibrillation. This is a single center study of catheter ablation AF patients enrolled in a prospective registry. Possible acute pericarditis was identified if the patients complained of pericardial type chest pain, which had been treated with specific anti-inflammatory medications within three months of AF ablation. The authors identified 226 patients out of 2,215 patients, which was 0.2%, who had suspected pericarditis over a one-year time frame. 65.9% were treated with colchicine, prednisone was used in 29.2%, and high-dose ibuprofen in 19%. 25% of the patients were treated with more than one anti-inflammatory agent. On univariate analysis, lower baseline CHADS VAST score and higher BMI were associated with pericarditis. After multivariable adjustment, decreased age was independently associated with suspected acute pericarditis with an odds ratio of 0.95. Among the 226 patients, post-procedure pericardial effusion was present in 9.3% and pericarditis electrocardiographic changes in 19.5%. The authors conclude that suspected acute pericarditis is common after AF ablation and is associated with a younger age. The authors conclude 
that systematic assessments for acute pericarditis after AF ablation should be considered. The next paper by Dr. Cheryl Terrace and colleagues is titled Relationship Between the Posterior Atrial Wall and the Esophagus, Esophageal Position During Atrial Fibrillation Ablation. These authors compared two patient groups using multi-detector computerized tomography to assess esophageal position stability. The two groups were 39 consecutive patients referred for AF redo ablation between November 2018 to November 2019, for whom the esophageal position on the multi-detector computerized tomography, or MDCT, was compared between the first ablation and the redo procedure. The second group was a group of 100 consecutive patients referred for any AF ablation procedure between March of 2020 and November of 2020, in whom the esophageal position was obtained by three different imaging methods, MDCT, cartal UniView, and esophageal fast anatomic map, or FAM, and then the observations were compared between one and another. The catheter ablation in this study was performed by the bylaw method with patients under general anesthesia using high-frequency, low-volume ventilation. In group 1, that is the MDCT group, they had a mean atrial esophageal distance of 1.2 plus or minus 0.6 millimeters. The total fingerprinted area was 13.2 plus or minus 5.2 centimeters squared before the first ablation and 13.5 plus or minus 5 centimeters squared before the redo ablation. There was a 91% plus or minus 5% correlation on the esophageal fingerprint position between the first procedure and the redo procedure using MDCT. But in three cases, or only 8%, the position was different with a correlation of only 40%. For the 100 patients in the multimodality groups, the mean atrial esophageal fingerprinted distance was 1.3 plus or minus 0.5 millimeters. The esophageal position as related to the atrial posterior wall was identified to be leftward in 55%, central in 23%, rightward in 9%, left central 8%, and right central 5%. The correlation between MDCT and cartel UniView was 82%, and between MDCT and esophageal FAM was 80%. The correlation between esophageal FAM and cartel UniView was 83%. The authors note the primary findings to be, first, the esophageal fingerprint is a novel 3D method of depicting the relationship between the esophagus and the left atrial posterior wall derived from MDCT. Second, there is a high temporal stability of the esophageal position between procedures separated by several months. Three, multiple imaging techniques are available periprocedurally and can be used to evaluate the esophageal position. And finally, these imaging techniques show high stability of the esophageal position during the procedure in patients under general anesthesia. The next paper is Safety and Efficacy Outcomes of Atrial Fibrillation Ablation in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis by Dr. Ikram Hawk and colleagues. This is a safety and efficacy outcomes study looking at AF ablation in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. This is from a single institution collecting data between 2010 and 2021. The 45 patients were propensity matched to 45 patients without rheumatoid arthritis using nine baseline characteristics. The primary efficacy outcome was AF occurrence, the need for antiarrhythmic drugs, and repeat catheter ablation. The secondary outcome was safety. The groups were well-matched for clinical and procedural characteristics, except that rheumatoid arthritis patients had a statistically higher C-reactive protein and ESR levels. 
Rheumatoid arthritis patients were significantly more likely to have AF recurrence with a p-value of 0.006. They were also more likely to take an antiarrhythmic drug and require a repeat ablation. The use of immunosuppression or corticosteroids at the time of ablation did not influence the primary endpoint. On multivariate regression, CRP was an independent predictor of AF ablation and repeat ablation. ESR levels was also an independent predictor of AF recurrence. The authors concluded in their patients, the presence of rheumatoid arthritis predicted a higher risk of clinical AF recurrence, need for antiarrhythmic drugs, and repeat ablation. The next paper is by Dr. Ting-Yung Cheng. This is called Long-Term Outcome of Patients with Long-Standing Persistent Atrial Fibrillation Undergoing Ablation Guided by a Novel High-Density Panoramic Mapping System, a Propensity Score Matching Study. The authors evaluated the use of the panoramic mapping system, Cardinal Finder, to guide pulmonary vein isolation and additional potential AF drivers in 76 patients referred to the Taipei Veterans Hospital. All patients had non-paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. A comparator group of 80 patients with long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation who had received conventional PV isolation and elimination of non-PV triggers was used as control. Propensity score analysis was adjusted for three confounding factors, age, gender, and left atrial dimension in a matched 1 to 2 ratio. The authors found that the group 1 patients who had ablation with cartel finder had a lower recurrence of AF than those in group 2 who were treated with the conventional methods with a p-value of 0.04. Unlike AF, there was no difference in recurrence of atrial flutter or atrial tachycardia. A Cox proportional hazard regression analysis showed that AF duration and PV isolation plus AF driver ablation using a panoramic mapping system with cartel finder were both independent predictors of recurrent AF after catheter ablation of long-standing persistent AF. The authors suggest that this approach may provide better outcomes in these patients. The next paper is titled, Correlation Between Sinus Rhythm Deceleration Zones and Critical Sites for Localized Reentrant Atrial Flutter, a Retrospective Multicenter Analysis by Dr. Christopher Woods and colleagues. This paper examines the correlation of critical isthmus sites for localized reentry in atypical left atrial flutter using deceleration zones identified by isochronal late activation mapping or ILAM during baseline rhythm. This was a retrospective study of 31 consecutive patients from three centers identified between 2018 and 2020 who had localized left atrial flutter and in whom all underwent sinus rhythm and atrial flutter high-density activation mapping. The authors defined left atrial flutter as reentry restricted to two wall segments of the left atrium. The critical isthmus was defined by activation mapping and sites of successful termination during ablation. A deceleration zone was defined as greater than three isochrones within a one centimeter radius during baseline rhythm, and these were then correlated to the location of the critical isthmus. A total of 32 distinct atrial flutters were mapped amongst the 31 patients. The mean tachycardial cycle length was 294 plus or minus 46 milliseconds. N-site was used successfully to map atrial flutter with 2,250 points and rhythmia with 15,000 points. Most of the atrial flutters were dependent to the left atrial anterior wall, 43%, or the posterior wall, 25%. Ablation was performed at the critical isthmus as defined by the activation mapping and except for one patient with entrainment mapping. The mean duration of radio frequency required for tachycardia termination was 41 plus or minus 30 seconds. 
During baseline rhythm, a mean of 4,060 points were collected during sinus rhythm and 6,209 points were collected in the atrial flutter activation maps. The authors found at least one deceleration zone in all patients. ILAM mapping showed approximately 3.27 isochrones per deceleration zone and co-localized to critical isthmocytes at a distance of 6.7 plus and minus 3 millimeters. A total of 34% of the atrial flutter cycle length was contained within 0.5 centimeters of the deceleration zone. The authorized summaries their major finding that critical isthmus sites for localized atrial flutter spatially co-localize to deceleration zones that can be identified during sinus rhythm. They note that the atrial flutter circuits were clinically delineated with high-density multi-electrode mapping using all commercially available mapping platforms. The title of the next paper is Deep Sedation with Propofol in Patients Undergoing Left Atrial Ablation Procedures Is It Safe by Dr. Lenny Forschner. This study explores the use of propofol deep sedation administered by electrophysiology staff in 3,211 patients undergoing left atrial ablation procedures, 39% of whom were female. 37.1% were paroxysmal, 35.3% persistent, and 27.6% had left atrial tachycardias. Midazolam, fentanyl, and propofol were administered by EP staff according to their practice since 2012. Esophageal thermal safety included obtaining a contrast-enhanced cardiac CT scan with Siemens Somatom Definition Flash Dual Core CT within 24 hours of ablation using a specific institutional protocol to allow cardiac segmentation and esophagus location and to exclude intracardiac thrombus formation. Equipment needed for resuscitation was available in the operating room. In the case of respiratory depression, endotracheal intubation or non-invasive ventilation was implemented by standby anesthesiologists. Continuous vital sign monitoring was conducted with a Philips monitoring system. Airway patency was maintained using an oral airway tube and continuous oxygen therapy at 2 to 4 liters per minute by a nasal cannula. Medication doses were adapted to the patient's body weight. Deep sedation with propofol was maintained throughout the procedure. The Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale was used to evaluate the level of sedation. A RAS score of minus 4 was considered as deep sedation. The mean doses of propofol, midazolam, and fentanyl were 33.7, 3, and 0.16, respectively. Norepinephrine was used in 12.3% of patients due to hypotension. Non-invasive ventilation was necessary in 47 patients, or 1.5% of the cohort. Endotracheal intubation was needed in one patient, or 0.03% of the cohort. Procedural duration, high BMI, high CHADS-VAS score, high age, low GFR, the presence of diabetes, and low baseline oxygen saturation were all associated with the need for non-invasive ventilation or endotracheal intubation. The only independent predictor for requirements of non-invasive ventilation or endotracheal intubation was a high BMI greater than 30.1 plus or minus 9.0 kilograms per meter squared. These clinical factors predicted a 40% higher risk for the need of non-invasive ventilation or endotracheal intubation. 
Sedation, anti-pain control, including midazolam, propofol, and fentanyl, administered by EP staff, is safe, according to these authors, with only a 1.53% requirement of non-invasive ventilation or endotracheal intubation. A high BMI emerged as an independent predictor for the need of non-invasive ventilation and endotracheal intubation. The next paper is by Paige Mass and colleagues. This is titled, An Infant Phantom for Pediatric Pericardial Access and Electrophysiology Training. This paper describes low-cost simulators built and tested by these authors to help train practitioners to perform percutaneous pericardial access and cardiac ablation procedures in pediatric patients. The simulators, which cost less than $500, are housed within an infant-sized heart with a skin covering, the latter to simulate the pericardium. The simulator is then housed within infant-sized dowels. There are two simulators. One is to practice percutaneous pericardial access to the heart. Participants obtain sheath access to the heart under direct visualization. The second simulator was designed to practice manipulating a catheter through a small heart. This includes the use of three-dimensional carto mapping to learn positive targets and to avoid negative ones, such as the His bundle. The authors found that physicians in training improved their time to complete the task between the first and second attempts, whereas experienced physicians overall took less time and there was no change between the two attempts. The authors conclude that using this inexpensive and anatomically realistic simulator is useful for physicians in training to learn critical procedural techniques and developing competency for pediatric cardiac procedures. Dr. Charles Baru provides an accompanying narrated PowerPoint for this paper. The next paper by Dr. Jamie Waugh is titled, A Novel Automated Junctional Ectopic Tachycardia Detection Tool for Children with Congenital Heart Disease. This study is about junctional ectopic tachycardia in children with congenital heart disease which can appear as a sinus tachycardia. The authors develop a novel automated arrhythmia detection tool to try to identify and distinguish JET from sinus tachycardia. This is a single center retrospective cohort with bedside monitor captured ECG data from 40 patients. The algorithm calculates a P-prominence median and a PR interval interquartile ranges, and these are used in a logistic regression model. In total, 509,833 cardiac cycles were used, and the algorithm identified that the extracted peak prominence median feature is much smaller in JET compared to normal sinus rhythm, whereas the PR interval IQR feature is larger in JET compared to normal sinus rhythm. The ROC for the test cohort was 93%. Using a threshold of 0.73 yielded a true positive rate of 90% and a false positive rate of 17%. The authors conclude that this new algorithm tool can identify JET using the two identified ECG features, which reflect a loss of a normal P wave and PR relationship. They posit that this tool may help for a more rapid and appropriate intervention to treat this important arrhythmia. The next paper is by Dr. Takehiko Nagase, entitled Evaluation of Linear Lesion Formation and Thermodynamics by Dragging Ablation with a Third-Generation Laser Balloon. The purpose of this study is to compare the lesion characteristics formed by the Motorized Rotational Delivery System, or RAPID mode, Laser Balloon 3, compared to point-by-point -point laser ablation. The different ablation modes were applied to a chicken model of tissue applying different watts and durations of the applications. Lesion depth, width, and continuity were then visually compared for the visible gap using a scale of 1 being perfect to 3 being poor. 
Lesion continuity was classified by the visual gap degree categorized from one perfect to three poor. Thermodynamics and maximum tissue temperatures were assessed under infrared thermographic monitoring. The authors found that lesion depth and width were smaller in rapid mode laser ablation than that observed with the point-by-point -point laser ablation. The authors do note, however, that the mean lesion depth was equal to or greater than 5 millimeters. Lesion continuity was considered to be one or perfect in all samples in both of the rapid mode laser ablation and in the point-by-point -point laser ablation modalities. Looking at the infrared thermographic observation, the authors demonstrated that the rapid mode laser ablation produced rapid and gapless linear lesion formation with thermal stacking in the rapid mode laser ablation. The maximum tissue temperature was known to be lower in the laser ablation than point-by-point -point laser ablation, P less than 0.001. The authors conclude that the rapid mode LB3 ablation is a promising alternate ablation modality. The next paper is by Dr. Omar Kride with a brief report entitled Utility of a Cloud-Based Lesion Data Collection Software to Record, Monitor, and Analyze an Ablation Strategy. The authors describe a novel cloud-based storage system utilizing machine learning to analyze ablation data obtained during catheter ablation for atrial fibrillation. The authors demonstrate key ablation-related parameters that are predictive of the need for additional ablation beyond initial first-pass encirclement in order to achieve pulmonary vein isolation. They conclude that this system described in their report may be a useful tool to analyze mapping and ablation procedure data leading to improved procedural outcomes. The final paper is our Fellows Corner. Dr. Marco Bergante provides a case report titled Beware of Superior Vena Cava Isolation During Cryo-Abloon Ablation of the Right Superior Pulmonary Vein. Dr. Bergante describes the case and as well his key learning points. I encourage you to read this interesting case. Well, that concludes this June 2022 Heart Rhythm O2 podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing about these studies and invite you to continue reading and listening to the HRO2 journal. Thank you for listening.